This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast, episode number 61, with guest Rebecca Base ching All links and resources you hear on this podcast can be found by going to yourkickasslife.com forward slash 61. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host. The girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. As always, I'm very excited to bring you today's guest. I can't wait to have this conversation that is so, so important about perfectionism again. And we're talking about shame. Today, my guest is Rebecca Base Ching. Let me tell you a little bit about Rebecca. Rebecca helps people heal their relationship with their body, food, and their story. She is an expert on disordered eating, trauma, and EMDR, identity, Brene Brown's shame resilience theory, and family relationship issues. Rebecca is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California, a certified EMDA therapist and consultant in training, a certified Daring Way facilitator consultant after training with Brene Brown and her team. She's also a certified eating disorder specialist, survivor, supervisor, sorry, through IAEDP and a certified prepare slash enrich counselor. And I will tell y'all, if you are in the San Diego area and you are in need of a therapist, please contact Rebecca. She's amazing. I've known her for many years and she is just really brilliant at what she does. I wanted to mention a quick couple of things before we jumped into the podcast episode. First, registration is going to be still open, but we are looking at the end of early bird pricing for the Tanning Tacos and Transformation Retreat in Mexico. Uh, It's in early, well, it's in May of 2016. So if your soul is calling you, girls, get on it. You'll save $150. There is a payment plan that covers the next four months, so that's spread out for you. It's at tripletretreat.com. Again, those links are all in the show notes. And the last thing is, if you do not have a free copy of my ebook, 21 Tips and Tools for a Kick-Ass Life, No Bullshit Included, you can get that just from your phone. If you text the word kick-ass, all one word, to the number 66866, you just reply with your email address and get the confirmation and that ebook will be delivered to you. Again, it's the word kick-ass, all one word, to the number 66866, and that will get you set up with my free ebook, which is very soon going to go away. I have a whole new freebie coming shortly, and so that one will be retired. So if you don't have it, get on it. And without further ado, here is Rebecca. Hey, ass kickers. Welcome to episode 61 of the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast, and I'm so excited to have my guest today. I know I say that about every single one, but you heard a little bit about Rebecca before we uh, before we were on right now, and Rebecca, I had the, the honor of being one of her clients as I was going through my certification in the Daring Way program, the workout based on the research of Dr. Brene Brown, and Rebecca held my hand through the whole thing, and she knows this work backward and forward, and it was a couple months ago. I was like, you have to be on my podcast mm-hmm. so we can talk about shame, and um, here you are, so thank you for being here. Oh, Andrea, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. 
And it's funny, last week I recorded a solo podcast and at the end of it I I sort of forewarned my people and I was like, can't wait for next week, I'm having a guest on and we're going to talk about shame. <laughs> Woohoo, right? <laughs> <laughs> but what I, what I love about this work is that, yes, it's deep and meaningful and I think essential in our personal development journeys. But it, I think Brene and you break it down into easy to understand concepts and that's really what everyone loves and everyone can understand to be able to take that into their real life. So everybody take a deep breath <laughs> and let's jump right into shame. And my first question is really based off of what I hear a lot from the women that I work with, the women that I talk about doing this work one-on-one -on -one with, or, or just talking about the work in general. And they say things like, I really resonate when you talk about perfectionism and control and seeking approval, authenticity, vulnerability, but I just don't get this shame thing. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't walk around feeling shame. So I know it's really a broad question, but what do you have to say about that? Well, and you know, I, I look at this a lot of times from a, a trauma perspective too and a neuroscience perspective, but shame is part of the whole spectrum of human emotions. So, and it's a dark emotion. And so there's a lot of reasons why our brain does not even want to acknowledge it, let alone name it and connect with it. So if you're connecting with perfectionism, then shame is there, mm -hmm. whether you name it or not. If you're Connecting with vulnerability, which as Brene defines as risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. And if you're in vulnerability, you're not comfortable. And where vulnerability is, shame is too. So um, it, it's, uh, I think it's super vulnerable even to name and claim that you are feeling shame in the moment. And the key part of developing a shame resilience practice is just identifying how it impacts you and how it has impacted your story, which is obviously can obviously still impact your presence. So I think we also have a lot of stereotypes about what it looks like to experience shame. And it's so unique. And I, and I think this is the tricky thing about what Brene so brilliantly does is she makes very complex things so easy to understand, yet it's so complex to live out. And I think we can read it and intellectually get it, go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we can talk about it over tea or coffee or whatever your, um, your uh, libation choice is and, um, and move on. But then when you're in it to know, and so I mean, shame, you know, Brene defines shame as that intensely painful fear or feeling of not being worthy of love and belonging. Mm -hmm. And that's the threat that, I mean, that love and belonging is how we are hardwired. That is, that is our oxygen for our soul. Mm -hmm. And so if there's any threat to that, we're going to armor up. So if you're claiming perfectionism, then you're protecting. And it's, and, and, and it's important not to, I think, to respect the role of perfectionism. Because if perfectionism is showing up, there's something behind that armor that's mm -hmm. pretty deep and tender and scary. So, I mean, this is, this is where the work happens. This is the drilling in. And this is the not glamorous, not pretty, but incredibly human and... Um, very common struggle. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does. And I, I think I have I have two things to tag on. The one is I, I had a, a quick example because I, I think people still get sort of tripped up on what the definition of it is. And I know in the very beginning of this work, I if I thought about shame, I thought, okay, so that's for people that have had like deep 
trauma um, mm-hmm. that have maybe had um, you know, molestation as a child, or were just emotionally abused to made feel like they were horrible people. And that's kind of how I looked at it. And I'm like, well, I don't have any of that. So I don't think I feel any shame. But I the way I read kind of defined it, I had a client who was feeling the same way. And she's like, I just don't understand totally wholly understand that definition. It was it's mm. basically the one you said. And the way I worded it is I said, it's that feeling that you feel that you are wrong for being you. Yeah. And like if you're in a situation where you are trying to act like and and if anyone remembers I um I did a podcast a couple weeks ago on perfectionism and like perfectionism is really when you're when you're doing things for the sake of other people and you're trying to be your actor you know have things to make you look a certain way. So if you're doing that then I think I feel like that, and I think that this is the case for a lot of my people, is that if you're not claiming shame, you might not walk around feeling shame all the time, but I guarantee if you're not looking at it, what how it looks in your life, you are hustling to run away from it. Mm-hmm. And um, once I sort of realized that, I was like, oh my God, that's what I've been doing for decades. <laughs> right. Trying to get away from it. And what that looks like is perfectionism. That looks like control. That looks like people pleasing. And what's your take on that? No, I, I think perfectionism is a very effective but not sustaining um, protective mechanism from feeling dark emotion. So, you know, perfectionism can have a spectrum of responses. So you kind of touched on one end of it. If it's there's only one way to be, to do, to think, to look like, to act. You know, so and then and there's the people pleasing part. I can't disappoint anyone. I cannot let anyone be disappointed. Perfectionism also has a dark underbelly, too, which shows up a lot in my office. And that's the under functioning. There's the over functioning part. There's the under functioning. I'm not even going to start it unless I can do it perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, I already showed up for the exam light. So why even try and take the test or, you know, I didn't get the application in on time. I'm not going to pay the late fee. So what's the point? And we just don't even show up in life because it's, we don't, we, there's a chance we're not going to succeed. We're avoiding failure, disappointment, rejection, all of that stuff. So we're trying to avoid the dark emotions that are a part of the spectrum of human experience now. And it's important. And, and I, I get this pushback a lot too. So I have a lot of clients who I joke and say they have the curse of the smarty pants brain, like brilliant men and women who are making an incredible impact on this planet in their families in their businesses at their academic institutions and so on. Um, and so if you, if the perfectionist piece is different than striving for excellence, you know, giving your all, every day, it's going to look different. You know, if I get a couple hours of sleep and, uh, and, and didn't feed myself well and haven't had good connection time with my husband, I'm not, my A game is going to look different than mm-hmm. it did on other days. So, and this is very hard because if, if you feel a pushback when you hear that going, well, there's only one way to be and only one way to do and look and act and all of it and weigh if you're, you know, w- regarding the numbers on the scale and all of that stuff, that's just protection. Then you're hustling because if one little pieces out of place. It's a house of cards. And so there's not room for flexibility. Perfectionism fuels rigidity. And the flexibility of excellence, there's freedom there. Mm -hmm. There's grace in there. You can tolerate disappointment going, that wasn't my A game today, but I don't suck. And I still am worthy. I still am enough. But I'm going to, what do I need to do differently? And so there's, there's room and I'm not worrying what everyone else thinks. 
I'm not trying to get into their heads and how they perceive me mm-hmm. constantly. And that's just our brains trying to protect ourselves. But And there's a difference between being sensitive to how other people perceive you or they're going to experience it versus being a slave to that. Because I always tell my clients, whatever you think about the most, that's what you worship. Hmm. And that's a very humbling statement that I have to remind myself often too. Um, what it, What's consuming my brain space most of the time, then that's what's getting my love and adoration. And is it what everyone else thinks? Um, is it the reflection in the mirror? Is it the money in the bank? Is it what everyone's, everyone's opinions and affirmations of me? And it's, and it's, you can't, I don't think can let it go, especially once you've had perfectionism as a part of your story and they've actually isolated a genetic trait. So we have a heart, a lot of us have a hard wiring towards that. Yes. I remember you telling me about that. Yeah. And and I doesn't mean we're death. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I can geek out and talk about, you know, epi, epigenetics and stuff. We can change some of that. So much of it is just how we respond to stress and how we can tolerate the dark emotions and dealing. And sometimes it's just about drilling in and digging into stuff in our life. Even if you don't have a real hardcore abuse story, what they're finding is and I, and I see this when I work with a lot of uh, clients who've been blessed in their lives with resources and opportunities, but emotional neglect is a big part of their story. Mm-hmm. And neglect is just as traumatic, they're finding, as some of these other experiences. And we, and we often do comparative suffering and go, oh, I, don't, I didn't have it that bad. But our, our unique brains and our unique stories could be responding to something that perfectionism is protecting, trying to protect us from feeling. So emotional neglect, emotional abuse, but even just that neglect, you've got, oh, I have, I've had house and education and nice things, but you didn't have that place to know that you're okay as you are and to fumble through life and go through adolescence with affirmation and a place to stumble and fall and stand up. And those, those precious places is what I see a lot in my practice. And so many people neglect those wounds because well it wasn't that bad and look at all that I've been given Mm -hmm. and perspective is wonderful it's helpful um but neglect is an important uh, attachment trauma that we're seeing show up in our offices a lot well Lynn I love how you said a couple minutes ago um about that you know striving for for excellence is flexibility and the way I translate that is I think that perfectionism and the whole dichotomous thinking of, of black or white thinking, it's all or nothing, that mm-hmm. and perfectionism go hand in hand, just what I see with my clients. And sure. I think that that gray area, that middle ground of not knowing is so uncomfortable for myself and my people of, you know, we want, I had Christine Hassler on here a few weeks ago and she was like, we want a desired outcome so bad that when we don't have it, we go see psychics. (laughs) 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 It's true. And so it's like that great. And I just want to point something out before we move on is that, um, it's, it is really uncomfortable for everyone listening. It's like that getting away from that black or white, all or nothing is uncomfortable. And I love that Brene says this too about perfectionism is that it is a one day at a time gig. And it is something even for me, the amount of work that I've done, it's just every day it is a conscious choice to ask myself, like, am I in perfectionism or am I striving for excellence? Like, where am I in all this? And it's just really practicing mindfulness around it and not getting personal development perfect. Because I see that too. I'm watching (laughs) y'all. And I see that too. It's like, oh, I'm doing it wrong. (laughs) You touched on something really big there. And that that gray zone, that's vulnerability for a recovering perfectionist. Mm -hmm. And so if you're uncomfortable 
you want to be curious about that discomfort. And is it vulnerability? Is it shame? Is it something else? But just be curious about it. And you nailed it too. I think folks that have perfectionism as a part of um, the way they've been protecting from being flooded by such intense emotion is um, there's always this, I want to just be done with this. And I tell my clients. I've never said that, Rebecca. (laughs) No, yeah, never. Me neither. Me neither. Um, And I just tell them, okay, well, you can be done with it. You can go get a lobotomy then, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can just go live in a cave. But that won't be helpful either because you'll desire that connection because that's how you're made. So I think it's a total reframe of if I just fix this, then, you know, versus there's new layers in every season of life. And and what's and I think also, I don't know if you've experienced this, Andrea, but I know I have, and I see that in my clients too. When you drill down and do this work, you know, just of trying to to heal, to grow, to improve, there's a loneliness in it because a lot of people can talk the jargon, but people who just sit there and like they fall flat on their face and and just sit with struggle and really try and navigate life, the that that narrows down a lot more people. And there's a loneliness in that because there's a lot of shoulds and a lot of, a lot of people are uncomfortable with someone they love struggling. Mm-hmm. So there's just like, mm-hmm. get better. So I feel comfortable. So it's, it's a tough place and it's a lonely journey, but it's, um, I think the journey sometimes that we, the journey have to be on. And sometimes loneliness is a big part of it. And that's another dark emotion to tolerate. Yes. And oh my gosh, that's a whole nother podcast yeah. episode <laughs> to go into that. Um, but I, I do want to talk about Brene's new book, a couple of questions yes. there. And for all of you that don't know, Brene wrote her fourth book called Rising Strong, and it comes out at the end of August, I do believe. And uh, Rebecca and I are lucky enough to ha- got, get an advanced copy. And there's a couple of nuggets I wanted to pull out. And you wrote a blog post where you pulled out your favorite nuggets. And, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, if you all go to yourkickasslife.com forward slash 61, you can get the link for the book and for this particular blog post. I'm going to read one of them. There were so many great ones. It was hard to pick. But um, you quoted, I'm going to quote Brene and then quote what you said about it. And let me preface this by saying when we talk about the word the arena, for those of you that don't know, the arena represents any place of vulnerability in your life. It could be big things, um, you know, like starting to date again after you've been divorced or having a new baby after a miscarriage. It could be small things. I don't know if they're ever really small, but <laughs> just well, small like your steps. house showing mm-hmm. up at your kid's school. You know, Exa- thank you just, for those examples. Yeah, yeah. So the quote from the book is: "Falling in the arena in service of being brave is where our courage is forged." And oh. the comment that you made about that is: "You do not develop courage by studying it, which is kind of yep. just what you were just saying. You develop it by showing up, falling, and rising again. The struggle is hard as you fight to stop living from stories that are keeping you stuck." So yep. please say more about that. Let that just yes. sink in, everybody. <laughs> well, and just, to clar- arena, yes. and just to clarify, some of those quotes, because I um, was fortunate enough to actually train with Brene on the new curriculum that you guys and, and everyone in the Daring Way community will have um, access to in a matter of days, which is exciting. So some of those quotes are there just from, from my time uh, just listening to her and wrestling with some of that stuff. And yeah, I, I think it's just, you know, if you're encouraged, if you're accessing your courage, you are afraid. Mm-hmm. You don't do courage if you're comfortable. And I think this is a, a big misnomer. Like when words get popular, sometimes they use their meat, they lose their meaning. Um, and so when we fall on our faces, whether it's just 
it could even just be having to have a have a hard conversation with a spouse or um, raising your hand in in class or giving feedback at work that's not going to be popular um, and it not being received that type of stuff you know but it's 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 taking a stand because you're aligned with what matters most to you and so that you are you are showing up in your life and little ways that may seem little to other people, but are big to you for me, you know, family or matters of work or my, my uh, friend community. Um, and, and I rumble with the messiness of it when I feel like, Oh, I didn't feel understood or they were just total asses right there. And, mm-hmm. you know, or they were disrespectful and how I respond to, to that. And so that takes courage to, ver- to, to still rumble with that. Um, versus just say, All right, I'm done with them or whatever, or everything's fine, you know, do the mm-hmm. whole, everything mm-hmm. is awesome, you know. <laughs> so I, I think that we can intellectually understand courage, but you don't know it until you have been, when you've fallen and you've struggled and you've felt rejection and disappointment, you've felt the shame, even if you don't, uh, fear, all of that stuff, and you still stand up and go, I'm going to keep on, I'm going to stand my sacred ground here. This is important to me. I'm not going to be treated this way. Or if we make this decision, it will hurt our company mm-hmm. um, or it'll hurt our family. So I, and that's the nuanced stuff. We don't, we think Braveheart sometimes with some of this is the hyperbole of courage. No, I mean, that's why I love Brene's blog is ordinary courage. You know, it's, it, and it's, it's the extraordinaries, the ordinaries, I'm not going to say it right, but ordinary and extraordinary but needless to say it's the ordinary courage that's the stuff that when Brene's been doing her research over the last several years that's what she's noticed in folks it's not these grand sweeping things so we can have all the definitions and armor up with the perfect response um but sometimes it's just seeing someone fall and stand up again and going yeah I get that and we're in it together you're not mm-hmm. alone and that's how we change culture, whether it's the culture in our family or school community or beyond. Yeah. Did that, did that answer your question? Yeah, you did. You absolutely did. And yes, I, I, I 1000% agree with everything you said. And just to pull out a quick nugget of, I just wanted to underline what you said that when you're being courageous, you are afraid. And I've said it to my audience so many times, but it's, it's so true. And I think that what happens is sometimes people make up that in order to be courageous, they look around at the people that are being courageous and they make up that those people have some kind of confidence gene or that they're not afraid. And the, the real answer there is, is that no, we are afraid as we're being courageous. It's how it works. Yeah, it's the, you know, tolerating risk, uncertainty and emotional exposure. And that's our superpower. And that's where shame resilience is such an, a resource. We can tolerate those things. And even if we fall and fail and struggle, that our worth isn't tied up into what everyone else thinks or in our own opinion of ourselves of it's only about my performance or my image or you know, the, the money in the account or whatever. And and I want to be clear too, this is a very fluid process. This is a continuum. It isn't, oh yeah, I don't care anymore. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I've dealt with that. It's just that's, we need to kind of shift out of that. Like a lot of this. I really but, wanted it to be like that. I still do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I had to surrender that because it was, I mean, a part of me secretly does too. Yes. But I just, um, there's also freedom in it too. I yes. want to invite more people. That's why I'm grateful that you're having this conversation who can tolerate the messy and the uncertainty and the uncomfortable. So we can have more folks um, around us when we're struggling and stumbling and 
navigating <laughs> life. Mm-hmm. There's nothing tidy about it. And perfectionism hates all this talk. It's probably like, well, I'm the exception. And that's what I hear from my clients. Like, yeah, yeah, I believe you, Rebecca, but I think I might be the exception to that. I don't have to go that far. And I'm like, you know what? Go for it. And some people just need to go collect data and and come back see what they can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yes, 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 and yes. So I'm going to go back to the book for a second, and sure. and you know to back to give a little bit more backstory about what Rising Strong is about, and it's it's really about. I, I my I, my definition is that she wrote the book is because people wanted to know, okay, so I've, I'm practicing courage, I'm going out into the arena, and I got my ass kicked, and I'm down there on the ground. How do I get up and keep going and deal with with the kind of aftermath of being vulnerable and not having it not work out as you wanted it to? And so I love that she calls it reckoning with emotion. And she talks a lot about getting curious about emotion that comes up in our lives. One of my, I'm not going to talk about this, but just to kind of give you all a preview, one of my favorite things that she talks about, and this is like where I'm highlighting and highlighting and highlighting is um, she talks about that most of us didn't grow up in families, like our family of origin did not teach us how to emote and talk about emotions. And and that was my family too. It, It wasn't ever emotionally abusive, but like you said, it was like kind of like neglect. Like we just didn't, we didn't have the tools to talk about that. So we just didn't. Like we're happy. (laughs) <laughs> put a smile on your face everything's good so um i think that in one of my favorite chapters she talks again a lot about getting curious about emotion that comes up in our lives instead of what we usually do and for most of it's it's avoiding it and right. she she also says that we quote unquote bounce hurt and want to mm-hmm. and i want to read an excerpt from the book so um i can have you dig a little bit deeper here and so bear with me it's it's a few paragraphs So she says, bouncing hurt, our ego is the part of us that cares about our status and what people think about always being better than and always being right. I think of my ego as my inner hustler. It's always telling me to compare, prove, please, perfect, outperform, and compete. Our inner hustlers have very little tolerance for discomfort or self-reflection. The ego doesn't own stories or want to write new endings. It denies emotion and hates curiosity. Instead, the ego uses stories as armor and alibis. The ego has a shame-based fear of being ordinary. The ego says, feelings are for losers and weaklings. Avoiding truth and vulnerability are critical parts of the hustle. Like all good hustlers, our egos employ crews of ruffians in case we don't comply with their demands. Anger, blame, and avoidance are the ego's bouncers. When we get too close to recognizing an experience as an emotional one, these three spring into action. It's much easier to say, I don't give a damn, than it is to say, I'm hurt. The ego likes blaming, finding fault, making excuses, inflicting payback, and lashing out, all of which are ultimate forms of self-protection. The ego Mm -hmm. is also a fan of avoidance, assuring the offender that we're fine, pretending that it doesn't matter, that we're impervious. We adopt a prose of indifference or stoicism, or we deflect with humor and cynicism. Whatever, who cares? When the bouncers are successful, when anger, blame, and avoidance push away real hurt, disappointment, or pain, our egos are free to scam all they want. Often the first hustle is putting down and shaming others for their lack of emotional control. Like all hustlers, the ego is slick, conniving, and a dangerous liar. Hmm. (laughs) Boom. Mic drop. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think my, I think the part that resonated with me the most and 
when I started highlighting is when when Brene was describing her own story about her ego, telling her to compare, prove, please, perfect, outperform, and compete. Yeah. And that's tough if you're a naturally competitive person and have achievement as just a part of who you are. I, you know, I, I, it's a, it's humbling to, to read that and even hear you say it again and just go, yes. I think a big part of this work is um, making sure, um, and, and Brene, you could tell she came out with some very strong language, but all of those parts that are slick, that hustle, that blame, that shame, they're all about protecting. Mm-hmm. And in the pursuit of safety, we often get farther away from what we're desiring. And that's, I think, what this is all about. And I think it's getting clear, this is all about emotional literacy, is that the heart of this work is Mm -hmm. emotional literacy. And, you know, Brene has her approach and there's, you know, so many different theories and approaches. And and this is just what her, where her research led her. But being curious about emotions, even this stuff that she wrote about, um, helps us kind of go, what's the purpose of that? What am I, what am I protecting myself from? respecting those parts, even those that we don't like and have gotten us in trouble because they're there to protect. And versus I'm just going to get rid of shame. And when I hear people, goodbye, shame, you're not coming back. I'm like, oh, where'd your brain go? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) Um, But I understand the intention of it. And Mm -hmm. so really the heart of this work is integration. It's integrating our stories, even the parts of our stories that we've done a really good job editing And it's okay that not everyone knows every bit of our story. Mm -hmm. But if there's not one person in your life that you can speak unedited to, that's that's loneliness Mm -hmm. and that's trauma and then shame is having a party. So yeah, those are some dark parts and getting clear on that and and, and starting to kind of filter through, hey, I really want to win that game or you know what, I'm going to go for that job and I want to get it. I'm going to give it my all. But part of part of shame resilience, part of Daring Greatly saying, I really want this. I'm really going to go for this. And if I don't get it, I'll be disappointed. Mm-hmm. I might even be pissed off and I might need to lick my moons for a while. You know, but when blame comes up, when the whatevers and when we're not showing on our faces what we're really feeling, we've got to start getting curious about what's going on. And I'm not saying we do this in all aspects of our life, Um but if we're operating, the big part of it, the big guiding light to this is our core values and getting clear on what matters. And if you start saying or doing things that are out of alignment with who you are and what you believe to be true, when we can put all the wonderful Pinterest JPEGs up on our boards mm-hmm. of all these things, but then how, what are we living with those things? And that's been really humbling and convicting and also kind of challenging in a good way for me to kind of clear the deck. So getting clear on the parts of ego that have been protective because it's scared and fear gets a bad rap. You know, Mm -hmm. fear in itself is like shame. It's not, it's there. It's part of the dark emotions. Fear originally is protective, but when we start living fear driven lives and shame driven lives, that's when ego is having a party, shame's having a party and perfectionism is a very, very common tool to protect. So so yeah, it, and that's, I mean, Brene covered a lot there. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stories. Yeah, for your readers, there's probably a lot of story behind all those reasons for protecting. So I just almost pace it too. It's just one thing at a time. And it's okay to rumble with this stuff. And that's where I'm hoping the culture shift will happen even mm-hmm. a little bit more. 
Yeah, I'm very excited that you know, that it's just becoming more of a conversation. And I think that was Brene's main goal that she's mentioned somewhere yep. or another that that was her big picture for her is just to have a global conversation about shame and courage and and all these things. You're exactly right. It's mm-hmm. it's it's just to to inform, to help shift the conversation, to be a part of it, not in any way to control it, but uh, to be a part of it. Welcome to centers, and just the fact that we're talking about this stuff is a victory. Mm-hmm. I think from her perspective. Yeah, and I want to um, kind of kind of switch gears a little bit, but there was I was preparing for this interview and I was actually looking for your for your bio and I just I love your bio and one of the things that you say in there I'm going to quote you because I would love to have you kind of dig into it and tell us more about it you say I am a connector not a shamer or a blamer I do not believe shaming people towards true health is productive or possible lasting change just does not happen that way so say more about that yeah. Brene, I think she tweeted this once and I've heard her say it too. You know, she says, shame crushes souls, the person receiving it and the person um, delivering it. Yes. So it, it's still very present in homes and schools and businesses and faith communities, you name it. Um, blaming is a discharge of pain. When I'm blaming, I mean, and I see this in both spectrums, I'm either taking all of the responsibility or none of it. And so there's not a place for interaction or change. Um, connection happens when trust is earned. Connection is being seen and understood, according to Brene's uh, research, how she defines it. And I love that. And so if there's this hubris, this part of our culture, where we have to puff up and go, oh, yeah, well, let me show you and I'm going to squash you. Mm-hmm. But that's, I mean, I, I, I suspect this about your believer, your, uh, your community and about, um, about my community too. Being mean, being a harsh person is not who they authentically are and it doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And when blaming comes up, that's just data. When judgment comes up, that's data that you're in vulnerability and something's got triggered and to be curious about it versus a way of living. And it's not fair. It's not fair because so many people do shame and blame and it seems effective on the outside. It's not sustainable. And I tell my clients, because we do a lot of comparative stuff, well, everyone else seems to have it all together. Other people seem to be dealing with this better. Why am I still wrestling with this? And I said, if you could only see the people that come into this office, Mm -hmm. who they are and what they're wrestling with, it'd be normalized. So I think that's important too. But if we're falling on judgment, blame, and shame as ways of correcting behavior in our environment, we're crushing souls we're disengaging relationships, we're decreasing trust, it's toxic. And just because it's the status quo when it's the homeostasis and how it's always been, um, it's not effective. And I'm just blown away with all the resources and tools out there, why that's still so present in so many large institutions today. It, it blows me away. So it, it's tricky. So if you, again, blame, I love how Brene defines blame as a discharge of pain. And then judgment, and some of that is that self-righteous piece. You know, I'm better than. Mm-hmm. And then, and again, when you're blaming, you're either taking all the responsibility or none of it. And there's no shared part of that. And and there's a protective part of that too. I don't want to engage. So when we disengage with judgment, blame, and shame, and there's not a chance for true healing, true reconciliation, true change. But it's a very messy, uncertain path, though, if you choose that one. Instead of, you know, shame, you suck. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. Your, your pay is docked. I'm done with you. We just cut it off, but then we stay frozen in that reactivity too. Oh, big stuff. 
I'm sure people listening are like, I need to go smoke a cigarette after this. <laughs> I don't even smoke and I'm feeling that way. <laughs> I, have, I have one more question before sure. we close up. And it's about, I think you mentioned briefly about having that person to tell your story to and, and talking about loneliness. And I think one of the hardest things women our age and really of any age, but and, and when we get out of college and having these kind of like built in communities they face finding the right person to tell their story to. And what I see come they come up against is, and when they're doing their own work usually, is that their friends might not be doing their own work. And these are people that are dear to their hearts. And it might not be that they need to scrap everybody and get new friends, but what is your advice for helping them ensure that they can nurture these relationships and hopefully, because what we all, you know, without getting too much into empathy and things like that, but that's really what, the goal is of having these great, amazing friendships that you can share your stories with? Mm. I think it's a great question and a very common question. And I think um, it's layered and it's complex, but I'll try to be succinct in the sense that I touched on connection, um, feeling seen and understood. Who are the people that we feel that way around? Who do I like myself when I walk away from that relationship? I'm like, yay. I, you know, this, I was seen, I, I feel good about me, not like puffed up, but because I was really truly seen. And that sometimes takes time. We can't hotwire, we can't force it. Um, and sometimes, you know, you have maybe work friends that are closer than others and people in your personal life. And they're not all like one person can't be your everything. And I, I love from a quote from Gifts of Imperfection, Brene's second book, where she says, so important to find the right person to talk to the right person at the right time about the right thing. Mm-hmm. Let me say that again. We want to find someone who, when we have an issue we need to talk to, that makes sure they're the right person to talk to about the right thing at the right time. And what I love about that, there's such grace in it because um, even me and my best friend, she can't be there all the time. She just had a fight with her husband or was up all night with her kid, um, You know, has a family member struggling uh, with health issues. And I'm like, on demand for me now. And then if she can't be, then that's it. You're not my friend anymore. No. And that's on us to kind of assess even with our inner circle of friends. Um, And these are people who over time have earned the right to know our story. And they may disappoint us or not be there for us 24 seven, because that's not what this is all about. Um, And I also think we neglect on being that person for ourselves. And that's where this emotional literacy and this work and so what you so beautifully do um, with those in your community is help them be a friend of themselves. And that sounds so, I know, cheesy, <laughs> um, but I actually don't mind cheesy. But um, I know for others, it sounds very hokey and maybe too pat. But spending some time really understanding, what do I like? What do I care about? What matters? What am I feeling? Mm-hmm. How come I'm acting that way today? And not just having to vent with others if we aren't doing that work internally because then we can't put it all on someone else we it's a it's a both and process of continuing to be show up and be kind um be curious about our own stories and making sure we're fostering and reevaluating relationships in our lives making sure there's give and take um and there's grace because not everyone can be there for us all the time and sometimes there are seasons of loneliness and blame and shame like to have a party during that time too Mm -hmm. but it is crucial that we find a way to share a story and sometimes it just might be um in our journal or on evernote (laughs) Mm -hmm. um 
uh, but to take some risks and even sharing parts of it if someone is a newer friend um, and just to be curious about that um, is risky and that's vulnerability right there too but our stories need to be told um, and they need to be seen and again if people are coming from places where they haven't had safe community that might take a while to rebuild but mm-hmm. it's just like oxygen our souls need that yeah I think I just to tag on to that I, I think that what might be important and maybe like a little mini assignment for people is that if you if you do feel like you have that person in your life and um, you want it to and I, I relate this kind of to dating you know it's like you're dating someone and you've been on a few dates and then you have like that talk of exclusivity or you know like <laughs> do you want to key to the key to my apartment you know or taking that next step but I got curious one time I'm like it's interesting that we don't do that in friendships very often you know and um, it could look as simple as telling your friend like, hey, remember that time that I came to you and I was upset about whatever and uh, you showed up for me so well and I just wanted to acknowledge you for that and I hope that I I reciprocate the same thing and, and I'm actually open to feedback in our friendship and you can even like, if it's kind of uncomfortable for you, you can even make a joke of it and be like, I listened to this crazy lady Andrea's podcast and she talks about this stuff, you know, just to <laughs> not make it so heavy and like, are we having a moment right now? <laughs> But just try and and see what's out there because I think that if they really truly are that friend, they're going to be open to it and they're going to be grateful that you took the time to acknowledge them and are putting that much effort into their friendship because I just don't think it happens that much these days. I agree. I think even just saying, hey, thanks for being there. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you and I'm here too. Um, and the other, I think the other side of the coin is, is you know, hey – what happened the other day? <laughs> you were not there. Mm-hmm. And I was sad and I was disappointed. Is everything okay? Because that wasn't like you. And um, what's going on? And that hurt for me that you, you know, said you were there, but then, you know, you were on your phone the whole time when we were talking, I was talking or something like that. And that, that, that hurt that made me sad. What's, what's going on? And so it's kind of both sides of it pursuing that. And that's intimacy. Yeah, it is. That's so interesting. I had a friend do that to me. Um, just maybe a, a month or so ago. And it was a conversation that we had like five years ago. And I had posted something mm-hmm. on Facebook. It was right around the time I wrote, um, some of y'all may, might remember, I wrote a blog post about having awkward conversations. And I think we need to have more of them. And I'm all for, you know, they are never <laughs> usually fun. It goes back to that whole, you know, being brave and afraid. And one of my friends called me and she was like, remember you wrote that thing on Facebook? And so... I have an awkward conversation to have with you. And she told me, and it was just like you said, like she had brought something to me and I wasn't there for her. And I remembered it. And I was, I was going through some shit at that time. And I remembered, I'm like, oh my God, this is what I was going through. And you're right. I, I could not, what I should have said in that moment was, I can't be there for you around this topic because I, I think I was going through the same thing or something. And it just, I, I could have been more honest is what it was. But I was so thankful for her to, for bringing that up. And she'd been carrying that for several years. Hmm. So, and it just makes the friendship stronger. And I, I was so grateful that she was honest and gave me feedback. Yeah. And she took the time to say, Hey, I want to circle back with you on this. And that's very validating, very loving, very respectful. Saying, I'm investing in you because mm-hmm. I, I, and that, that's really special. Well, because what she had been doing is just kind of poo pooing it and being like, Oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. And I can just deal with it on my own or go to a different front. But I heard her feelings. And I'm glad that she brought it to me so I could, you know, try my best to make it right. And there isn't like a little roadmap for this. It's a messy and perfect process that mm-hmm. you just got to do. 
you know, one step at a time. I know Brene says one day at a time. I think I got it down to one hour one at hour a time. One hour at a time, me too. <laughs> For sure. Or I say like one situation at a time because we could be there we faced go. with like half a dozen of them in a day and then the next day maybe we don't have any. But um, thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a great conversation and such a needed one. So I appreciate you being here and speaking to my audience and, and enlightening me as well. Well, thank you so much for having me, Andrea. I really appreciate you and all the work that you do. Thank you. And that really wraps it up for us today. And y'all, we are facing the very last days of the Tanning Tacos and Transformation Retreat. So if you are on the fence, we it'll still be open after the 31st, but the early bird pricing goes up and we are going to sell out these spots. We only have a certain amount of spots. So if you are at all interested, it's tripletretreat.com. It will be in the show notes. Let us know if you have any questions. And all of Rebecca's uh, bio, the link to Rising Strong, everything will be there in the show notes as well. And so until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.